0: I'm Elena Salinas, software engineer and host of the Women in Tech show, technical interviews with prominent women in tech. Running software at scale comes with its own challenges. Dipti Sighiretti, software engineer at PlanetScale, explained what database scaling consists of. We talked about different types of databases, horizontal and vertical scaling, and how to reason about what to choose. Dipti also talked about her experience working across companies of different sizes. Before we continue with the interview, I wanted to tell you that I launched a new podcast. It's called The Five Minute Mentor. In this podcast, you'll hear advice from prominent engineers, authors, artists, entrepreneurs, and more in five minutes or less. Check it out by going to mentors.fm or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts by searching Five Minute Mentor. Thank you. I'm here at KubeCon in Barcelona with Deepti Sigirelli, software engineer at PlanetScale. Deepti, welcome to the show. Thank you. At PlanetScale, you work on Vitesse. Can you explain what Vitesse is? I know this is in the area of databases, but can you give more context?
1: Vitesse is a sharding middleware for MySQL, and what it gives you is scalability and high availability. So with Vitus, there is really no uh, limit to how big you can make your database. Whereas with plain vanilla MySQL, beyond a certain point, it just cannot support traffic beyond a certain number of connections. And beyond a certain size, the performance will degrade.
0: Do you have a specific number in terms of size or how can we get an idea of how big this scale is? MySQL can
1: be multi terabytes, but what we recommend is that each instance should be no more than 256 gig because you get the best performance characteristics with that data size.
0: And in terms of performance, what do you mean? Like what sort of operations are we so,
1: looking at? As your data grows bigger, both your reads and writes become slower because when you're reading, you will be searching through a larger amount of data, a larger number of records to find what you're looking for. And when you're writing, you have to update a larger table, which might span multiple pages on disk. So the database still has to find the appropriate place to put that in.
0: And you mentioned that one of the things Vitesse is addressing is also sharding. Can you explain what sharding is?
1: Sharding is where you uh, take your data and split it up across multiple databases and this can be done manually and people have done it manually and then what they do is that they change their application logic to know which physical database the application is reading from or writing to. What Vitess does is it automates that whole process so that it's completely transparent to the application. The application doesn't need to know whether there is one database or a hundred databases it can pretend that there is just one database.
0: In terms of splitting the data, can you give an example in which data can be split? Like we can talk about a fictitious database with some values. Yeah, so let's
1: say you have a database in which you are storing orders and you have an ID for each order, which is a number field. You can apply a hash function to the ID and based on the hash value, on the generated value, you would, store the record for that order in a specific shard or a specific portion of your larger database, which may be multiple MySQL instances. So the reason you prefer something like a hash is because it gives you a good distribution because ideally what you want is that your shard should be of similar size. You don't want most of the data to end up in one shard and very little data to end up in another shard. And Vitas supports many sharding schemes that are built in, but you can also plug in a custom sharding scheme by writing a function and plugging it into Vitas.
0: What do you mean by sharding
1: scheme? So when you are sharding, you want to choose a column based on which you will shard and you apply a sharding function to that column. And the result of that function will map that record to a particular shard. So that's what I mean by sharding scheme. And there are built-in functions and there can be custom functions that uh, people can add to it.
0: And in the database, like you're saying, we have columns that one of them is the ID or the name of the order, what things like that. And we also have each row, which is a record of an order. So you're describing sharding in the column. Is it also possible to shard like the rows? Like, hey, I just won 100 rows.
1: Actually, you don't shard the columns. The entire row stays together, but you shard based on the value of a column. Okay, and what does that imply? So usually what you're doing with a database is, let's say you have an order and there is an ID, and you want to update the status of the order right? So it starts in, say, a new state. Order has been created. And at some point, it will go into a shipped, delivered, paid, it will go through some sort of state machine. And all the information that belongs to the order, you want to keep it together. So that's a row or a record in the database. So when you're sharding, you might shard based on the column, which is order ID, but you want to keep the entire row in one place.
0: I see. And would the reason for that be like performance related or is there something particular? No, this is
1: just how relational databases are structured. So the whole idea of the relational database is that each row is an entity and that entity stays together.
0: Okay, I see. And at what point
1: should we consider starting to shard? database so if somebody is trying to decide which database to use we know of people who were trying to decide between MySQL and Postgres and they already knew that their volume is high and they will need to shard and because the sharding for MySQL is more mature they chose MySQL but the decision of which database to use might be made based on other considerations not necessarily volume So if you've already chosen MySQL because it is open source and community uh, supported, even though there's an enterprise version from Oracle as well, even when you start, there is value to putting Vitus in place because Vitus actually provides features that make it easier to maintain MySQL and which make even a small MySQL database more reliable. So with MySQL, if you have a single database, if it goes down, then your system is down. You can run uh, multiple MySQLs in what is called a semi-sync mode and you have a master and you have replicas and replicas basically have a copy of the data in the master. Whenever you're writing to the database, you always write to the master. The replicas are essentially read only, but they are constantly getting updated With the data from the master and you can read from the replicas so that gives you two things it gives you improved read scalability so that you can support more requests but what you can do is let's say the master goes down for whatever reason hardware failure software error whatever it is instead of your system being down vitus has a way for you to fail over to a replica and make that the master And you can do this with no downtime. Because in addition to MySQL databases, there is also another component in Vitus, which is like a gateway, which is the access point for all the applications, what we call VTGate. What VTGate can do is if it detects that the master has failed and we are in the middle of a failover, it will actually buffer the requests from the applications. For a certain period of time or a certain number of requests, those limits can be tweaked. So it'll actually buffer requests so that you don't lose any of your requests from the application while the failover from the master to a replica is happening. And even if the requests do fail, as long as your applications have retry logic built into them, they can actually retry and this failover process takes a few seconds. So it's back to business. and you'll have a working MySQL instance while you repair the master that went down.
0: And normally, if we didn't have a tool like this, what would be happening do people have their own in-house you know solutions to deal with these failures or do can people just let it fail and you know assume that risk or what kind of the panorama looks like there are
1: other solutions so MySQL itself has a product Oracle has a product called InnoDB cluster or MySQL cluster one of the two which is supposed to provide you the same functionality but that is fairly new Wittus has been around for nine years now. Okay. The other solution people use is actually something that Wittus integrates with called Orchestrator. So they, people do run Orchestrator by itself without Vitus, and Orchestrator can detect that a master has failed and it can fail over. Mm-hmm. But what you don't get with using just Orchestrator is the buffering of the request so that your applications don't see any downtime. Mm-hmm. So that's an additional feature that Witis adds on top of what you can get with Orchestrator.
0: Yeah, so earlier we talked about sharding and what I want to ask you is you mentioned a lot of what b is makes this whole experience easy to use. Does
1: this also involve querying the database, querying those shards? Applications don't need to know about the shards, but if they want to, you can address the shard directly. Okay. So if somehow you know that you only want to, this is especially useful if you are doing queries that might read large number of rows. So instead of doing like if you're saying, give me all orders that were placed after January 1st of this year, and you know that you're going to get a lot of data, then you might want to do that one shard at a time in a loop rather than just sending that out to WITIS. So it is supported that you can address a shard directly. Okay. So I want to continue on the earlier thing that we were discussing, which was even if, so there is the volume, if you have large volumes, then you might want to use Vitus, but what do you get when you start? So some of the things we talked about are being able to tolerate failures and there are other features like connection pooling. And there's also something we call hot row protection, which is if the same row is being queried multiple times by the same client, then VTGate will cache that and it will return the cache value to you because it's coming from the same connection and nothing has changed. Exactly.
0: And one example where I've heard something similar just for people to understand is in Instagram, Instagram, we have influencers and those might get more reads so they are treated in a special way right even even though it's the same database or various shards. Right right yeah, yeah that that's makes kind of sense. Of, that's kind of what you're referring to. Yes yes. Yeah. And what you were also talking about was other reasons why to use this system primarily because it was developed at YouTube to handle large amounts of data so I've heard mixed things not particular about Bites, but just in general, like when things like these get released and then little companies like go about like trying to use them because everyone's talking about them and it's like you don't even need that because you're not really operating at that scale. Why go about doing it? But what you're saying is in this case it was it did
1: originate from massive amounts of data, but there are other attributes. Yes, yes. And especially if you're in a Kubernetes type of deployment. There are many problems that have to be solved if you want to run a database in Kubernetes and Vitus has actually solved all of those problems already. So you have a Kubernetes-ready database solution in Vitus.
0: What are some of the things that it addresses? I know you mentioned
1: earlier tolerance, failing. So in Kubernetes, a pod can be rescheduled for any reason at any time and with a, a database... If a database pod is rescheduled and you are using local storage, then you will lose your data. But with Witis, you don't lose the data because you've replicated it and you fail over to a node to a pod that already has the data and We have a backup and restore strategy where you take regular backups and you can bring up the pod that went down from a backup so that it's not coming up as an empty MySQL instance. It comes up with the data already in it. Obviously, it will be behind by a little bit because you would have taken the backup some time ago, but it can catch up to the current master through replication. From
0: your experience looking at the Kubernetes space, what have been some of the options in terms of storage that you see? I know you just mentioned local storage, but what are sort of the... So
1: you can use local storage. You can use a local persistent volume. You can use Amazon's EBS or Google Persistent Disk. Those are all possibilities. You can even run vitus with a Ceph or a Rook cluster. All of those are possible. And the later ones are those uh, the ones where... If the pod
0: fails, you can still...
1: um, Yes, with the persistent volumes, you don't lose the data because that's the whole idea of the persistent volume. But there are trade-offs in terms of performance. There is a performance penalty to using a persistent volume versus a local disk.
0: Mm -hmm. In what area is the performance issue? Both latency, throughput. Okay, and was that one of the reasons why uh, we have something like Vitesse or we would want to use something like Vitesse?
1: Well, data persistence is not the only thing mm-hmm. because if that's all you were worried about, you could continue to run your MySQL on-prem and have uh, some other strategy towards it. So that's not a main reason for running us. The main reason for running us would be scalability. Okay. In addition to the other things like yes. tolerance failure and... And the failure. time. So scalability and availability. Those are the two main things. Yeah.
0: Prior to working at BitTest you were building horizontally scalable supply chain planning systems. There's a lot of words in that, (laughs) but I want to begin by understanding what are supply chain planning
1: systems? So in a modern supply chain, there are a lot of things that happen before a good is made and after it is made before it reaches a consumer. So the distance from a raw material to a consumer is very long and there are many steps. And companies have been trying to optimize those processes for a long time now. Initially, it started with factory planning. Companies were trying to optimize their factories. And once that reached a certain level of maturity, they started trying to optimize their transportation planning and eventually the full supply chain. Supply chains used to be shorter before manufacturing was outsourced, but now supply chains are global. I have specifically worked on supply chain planning for high-tech manufacturers and also for retailers so there is forecasting so first of all you have to be able to forecast your demand so that based on your forecast you can plan to build a certain amount of product and once you've built a certain amount of product you have to be able to move it from where it's manufactured to where it's going to be sold so from a supplier to a distribution center to a retail store you have to make sure that there is sufficient inventory in the stores. So that's your inventory planning component of supply chain planning. So these are all problems in the supply chain planning area. And this is a pretty old field. But the computational power to solve these problems did not exist until like the 90s, at which point there was an explosion of supply chain software companies. And eventually, uh, what were traditionally called ERP companies, enterprise resource planning companies like SAP and Oracle got into it. And now they pretty much dominate the supply chain planning space. So that's a little bit about the industry. These problems lend themselves to both optimization and heuristics. So there are different approaches to solving them. If you are able to model it as a linear programming problem, then you would use NLP to solve it. Many times you cannot. Some people have attempted to use mixed-integer programming to solve supply chain optimization problems. And other people have used heuristics where they basically say, it doesn't have to be that complicated. As long as the algorithm is fast and produces a reasonable result, then we can iterate over that during execution and we can get close enough to what we want. So what would be an example of a heuristic? So an example of a heuristic would be, you have your forecast, And you simply take that forecast and offset it by the lead time and shift it to the next step higher in the supply chain. So, for instance, if you have a forecast at a distribution center, if you expect that your stores will require, say, a thousand units of something, a thousand iPhones, let's say is what you need to ship to stores from a particular distribution center. Then you just shift that by your transportation lead time to your supplier. And then you aggregate across multiple data centers and you tell the supplier, I need you to make so many of these things. That works well for stable products. It doesn't work very well for new items. So let's say you are actually um, introducing something new like an iPhone 11, then you have to use the historical information from the iPhone 10 to seed the heuristic for the new product. I
0: see. And in terms of horizontal scaling in this context of supply chain planning system, can you explain what it consists of? So
1: in the retail space, they have a lot of items, especially if you look at grocery stores. The typical grocery store in the US has 45,000 items that they sell and the catalog for a grocery chain might have upwards of 100,000 items because they don't sell every item in every store and a major retail chain might have 1,000 stores. So you are talking about planning 45 million units of work. You have to plan each of these things. And when it gets to that scale, at the time when I did this, there wasn't a machine big enough on which you could run this problem. So you had to, in order to support retailers, break it down into smaller pieces. What people had done earlier when they had even less computing power was to solve the problem in bits and pieces. Like each store will do something. Each distribution center will do something. It's not connected. It was disconnected. Mm -hmm. If you want to do a connected planning between the stores and the distribution centers and do it all in one shot, given that you could not fit the whole problem into one machine, you had to break it up. And the way to break it up is to say that items that are unrelated can be planned independently and they can be planned on different machines and it can be done in parallel. It doesn't have to be done at the same time. So that was a way to decompose the huge problem into smaller problems. And retail lends itself very well to this. Because the dependencies between items are very few. Whereas if you try to do this for something like a semiconductor manufacturer, where a particular machine might be shared by every chip that is being made in that factory, it becomes impossible to to break it down easily. Do you find this is
0: similar to what BitTest is doing in terms of sharding the database? Is it uh, the same idea? It is a very
1: similar idea. The big difference is that when I was doing this for supply chain planning, we still had a monolithic database at the back, which was a single point of failure. So that was something that the teams that I worked in discussed all the time. So what would you do if the database goes down, right? So you are running Oracle on some huge machine, And you have to have a disaster recovery plan. So there is another Oracle in a different data center in a different region. And you are constantly managing the transferring the log files from here to there and applying them to keep it up to date. Mm -hmm. And you are reconciled to losing a certain amount of data if a catastrophic event happens. So in terms of the database itself going down, there is a team of DBAs maintaining that huge Oracle instance, swapping out disks, swapping out servers as needed. So the database itself never went down in like five years that, that I was working on one SaaS solution. But disaster recovery was was a big deal. I see. So And the database was definitely a single point of failure. So what I did not do at that point, which I'm doing now, is how do you not make the database a single point of failure.
0: Okay, I see. I wanna switch gears a little bit now as we're wrapping up. I wanna talk about the fact that you've worked at small, medium and large companies. What are some highlights from each of this or differences or things that stand out from your experience?
1: So one thing about large companies is that there is definitely uh, more bureaucracy. It takes longer to make decisions and at a small company you have more autonomy and you're able to make more of a difference. And I think for people in working in the tech world it's very important to be able to have that autonomy, to be able to manage your own time. Which is something that I really love about Planet Scale, the size that it is at. The other thing is that with a larger company, especially with big companies, it's easy to feel like you're just a cog in the machinery and whatever you do doesn't make any difference. With a smaller company, like the small and medium companies, you can see the impact of what you're doing. You get to talk more to your end users and customers because there aren't so many layers. Whereas in a large company, you rarely get to talk to your end users.
0: So you would say um, small and medium share a lot of the characteristics. Yeah, yeah. Okay. And you've moved from software engineer to product manager, then again to software engineer. Can you talk a bit about the reasons why you first moved to product manager?
1: So at the company that I was working in at that time there was a technical product manager role that was essentially a technical lead in the sense that as a development lead you would also be worrying about what features go into the products they did not have a separate product manager role so that kind of happened organically so from a senior software engineer I became a technical product manager and then a development manager and as development manager i continued to play the product manager role mainly because the company didn't believe in having separate product managers and the dev managers were expected to do both so i was doing the project management the product management and the people management all at the same time
0: okay and i guess the main difference was the people management aspect or what was the, the main new responsibilities when you switched, for example, to, to tech lead?
1: The main new responsibilities were in terms of maintaining a roadmap for the product, deciding what goes into the roadmap, planning the releases, deciding what goes into which release. So the traditional release management type of activities also. So the way I moved into product management which I wasn't doing full time, which I was doing about half time, I would say, was just how things were structured in that company that I was working in. And the reason I went back to being a developer was twofold. One was that at that time I was working 60 hours a week and I really did not want to continue doing that. So having this sort of an overloaded role where you are a people manager and a product manager and a project manager was, I think, too much. For anyone, So that was one reason. And I just felt like my abilities as a product manager were not at the same level as my abilities as a, an engineer because I had the training and the experience as an engineer, which I did not have as a product manager. And it's always nice to do something that you are very competent at. So that was the other reason why I went back to being a, an engineer. I
0: see. So you realize what your strengths were and your interests, and you focused on that. Yes. Yeah.
1: And especially with with all the all the things that tech companies are doing, there are so many interesting problems to solve at a technical level that I can have a fulfilling job as an engineer.
0: Okay, sounds good. Well, Deepti, thank you for coming on the show. It's been great talking to you.
1: Thank you, Edina. It was really nice talking to you too.